So, Will, what have you been reading this week? Well, after pretty much right after our first episode, I knew we weren't going to be able to follow it this closely, and we had to do something a little bit more serious. But Jacobin had this amazing headline <laughs> that uh, that just immediately stood out to me. I think I, I sent it to you immediately after I saw it, which was, we can't settle for human rights. No, we cannot. No, we can't. Uh, human rights are not the goal. They're no good. They're a distraction, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're completely a distraction. The subheading is, the idea of human rights was once intimately tied to egalitarianism and socialist politics. By the 1990s, it was used to justify neoliberalism. Uh, and it's an interview with uh, Samuel Moyne. Uh, you want to tell the, tell the listeners who Samuel Moyne is? Yeah, so Samuel Moyne is a sort of left left-adjacent um, historian at Yale. Um, in general, you know, I don't really have a problem with Samuel Moyne. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see what Samuel Moyne says in, in, this, uh, in this text. But I, yeah, I, I do think it's funny, though, just like, you know, Yale professor says we don't need human rights. <laughs> I don't know. And that's not necessarily being fair, you know, to Samuel, but I, I just can't get over that. It's just so funny. Yeah, well, it, it, it is that very same kind of, you know, Jacobin thing that they do, you know, which is basically just in their style guide, they, they have a thing where they have to exempt themselves from being the media elite that they hate and counterpose with natural working class movements. And uh, usually the, the way that they do this is... They'll use words to describe people engaging with their ideas, like instincts, like workers should follow their material instincts <laughs> rather than workers should listen to us. You know, like those those other guys, have, you know, in the superstructure, you know, they have these ideas and they're just making things up and ideas aren't alchemy and ideas aren't magic. Whereas, you know, in the material base we're really just holding up a mirror to materialism, which is really just like an obnoxious way of just saying that they think that they're right. Because obviously we also think that our ideas are quote unquote grounded uh, in, in the truth. Yeah. Except I think we're not asking workers to smell their way to socialism. Yeah. We're not, we're not talking about, you know, workers, all they need to do is be close to, you know, the first three chapters of Capital and their like working class glands will start to expand and they'll they'll just be totally class conscious. Even the word consciousness is, is so um, it's so funny just in how like you're just aware of your class location. Uh, <laughs> it's material. Your... It's a material consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, workers have a, have a sort of their brain is just a little bit different. It's a it's a sort of. <laughs> It, it, it's a it's a material consciousness that you need to be aware of as a member of your own class as a member of your own class absolutely uh so yeah it, it's always ironic when jacobin will kind of eg exempt themselves in that way but that's usually the thinking behind it i think is that you know what they're doing either what they're doing is you know, the John Stewart defense where, you know, I'm just a comedian or this is just a magazine. We're not actually influencing anything or what they're doing is different from the academics that they think are infiltrating the working class and demobilizing everybody because their insights come from materialism and from, you know, they're not really ideas. They're just 
you know, we're just like prodding them <laughs> in the right direction. It's it's reading reading Marx is a lot more like electric shock therapy than it is like <laughs> anything else. Uh, academics infiltrating the working class. That sounds a lot like this podcast. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. In the first episode, we really explored the suspicion to media and ideas and communication that comes from this really reductive materialism that uh, that you see in Jacobin. And we're, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But I think that though we began with, with media critique, uh, for them, media pushes the same exact button that MMT pushes and that law pushes. You know, the critique of media is that you can't just, you know, substitute saying a bunch of provocative things for quote unquote real power, which, you know, comes from the brainstem. It's in the lizard brain. You just have to activate it. Class conscious brainstems. You can't print brainstems, Will. You can only organize brainstems from the position of one individual rank and file brainstem. That's right. Or you can, you know, bring them together at a Verso book launch. That's the only other <laughs> way. I'm just imagining, like, if if proximity to the first three chapters of Capital Volume 1 are what cultivate a class consciousness, I really think the most important socialist policy we could put forward is to uh, replace all the Bibles in all the hotel rooms with just with Capital Volume One. It, it would literally undo capitalism. I think I mean, that there's that, actually yeah. a really interesting. I know you're kidding, but this. Oh, also, you think I'm kidding? No, no. This is. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm writing this up for Jacobin next week. It also it gets at the kind of double think you know, which is that media and ideas don't work for the left. Uh, but they're also like why the left gets beaten every time because <laughs> That's it, right. they do work for the right. But really what it is is that the left can only win by organizing the material base in the objective way. And so if they're trying to do ideas, you know, it can beat the left, but really anything can beat the left because the left is just so easy to beat because the left can only do this one exact thing that, that ideas can't help at all. So I think this is actually kind of interesting because mm-hmm. the point of, leftist media like the point of jacobin is not to be read right mm-hmm. it's it's the point of jacobin is to exist materially <laughs> right is to be a milieu that people soak in i i don't know the specific uh numbers that they generate but i i doubt that people are reading jacobin who are like workers in need of populism or something like it's the sort of brooklyn by oakland connection as they uh they, they famously quipped that is a sort of ecosystem that reproduces itself in producing media that is not actually meant to convince anyone of anything, but is just meant to, as you said, hold up a mirror and signify materially the presence of a left by which a working class can locate itself and become conscious of itself. It's much more about awakening people and developing they'll often talk about developing a a layer of radically informed workers who can kind of like be catalysts not in a way that's paternalistic you know mumble mumble (laughs) yeah so i mean the the moin article um it's an interview with him he gives a broad narrative that is basically after world war ii there was socialism everywhere. He defines socialism as a focus on distribution specifically, and he contrasts distribution with 
uh, human rights framework uh, because rights are abstract, whereas distribution is, you know, it literally is like, you know, how are we going to split up the surplus? Like it's, it's, yeah. you know, rooted in production. It's, well, what it, I mean, it's the pie metaphor, right? Like, yeah. Right. We have a pie of a sort of naturalized economic uh, out, naturalization of economic output that then needs to be sliced up and, you know, delivered to, you know, everyone equally. Yeah. Uh, so you have um, coming out of World War Two, people had committed themselves to modes of national justice, as I mentioned, including some modicum of distributional equality. This is the period when socialism is at its height. Uh, not just behind oh, the Iron Curtain, but globally. You think of a state like Israel, founded the very moment that the Universal Declaration is propounded, and the amazing thing we should never forget is that it's founded by people we could call national socialists. Small n, small s, obviously. Which I'm not so sure that that is obvious. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, but then he does go on to say, there they exclude many people, notably Palestinians, but they want a state for Jews that is socialistic and that reflected the spirit of the time, inclusionary and egalitarian, while also exclusionary and hierarchical. What happens in the 70s is that even as the social contract at home is fraying and socialism is being abandoned, especially in Western capitalist countries, there's an extension of the gaze outward. In a way, that was noble because the nationalist imagery that prevailed in the middle of the 20th century, even if it was socialistic, was not about building a just world. You had a lot of people who redefined idealism in terms of human rights, which now are much less connected to a project of domestic social justice and more connected to a minimalist project of international justice. So there's, Ooh. yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's a, there's you know, a lot contrasting there. the phrase domestic social justice yeah. with, uh, with minimalist international justice. I mean, is, yeah, there's so much there, but I, I, I think, I mean, I think this episode is just going to be Will Makes Max Angry <laughs> by reading Jacobin. But, okay, so this is actually perfect for getting at something that has just bothered me for years till no end, which is the equation of commitments to so-called distribution of economic so-called output as the end point of socialism. Like we see this sort of thinking in Matt Brunig's social wealth fund proposal, which mm -hmm. naturalizes the forms of production and profit generation only to democratically allocate them through the distribution of said profits. Um, there's this imagination that socialism is just like, I mean, it's literally said there, right? It's, nations which you know it's domestic right it's domestic and it's you know nations which might do a little bit of apartheid you know mm -hmm. here and there you know it's their historical context could even call them national socialists but as long as you lowercase and lowercase s it, <laughs> it's not implicated in any legacy of national socialism um or inclusion versus exclusion but uh, fundamentally speaking we fundamentally do not agree that socialism can be achieved while exclusion is maintained and even more so there seems to be the understanding that socialism can only be achieved 
through exclusion. Yeah. Which is the Thomas Fozzie argument that we discussed in this sort of social conservatism in the first episode of this podcast. And this is your brain on Jacobin. Yeah. And your brain on private property. And and your brain on private property. Actually, going back to Samuel's bio, he, um, you know, he's written a bunch of books about human rights one of the titles was um the right to have rights (laughs) you know on on the one hand is like the most obvious thing in, in in the world you need to be identified as an entity in order to have rights but i think that it actually and i hope i'm not projecting too much onto what he thinks but i think that this is basically what he argues in the article is that in, in order to have legal subjects who can have rights, there's this kind of conflation with the fact that there are subjects with private property mm. and with property rights. And, you know, there's this sense of like, well, class struggle happens. Uh, it doesn't happen in the state. Right. It happens in nature, in the workplace. Right. <laughs> like in nature, which is private property. Uh, which is outside the purview of the state, except, of course, which, you know, should be obvious, private property is... It's not private, folks. Is <laughs> y- Yeah, it literally is always a relation uh, between yourself and everybody else, no matter how far you feel like you are from some federal agency or the National Labor Relations Board or something like that. The fact that what you see as the main point of conflict for class struggle is in an individual workplace, how much of the profits are given out as dividends versus how much are given out in wages. Or, you know, to be really radical, if the profits themselves are privately, collectively owned (laughs) by that workplace, you still are just reifying private property. And in Marxism originally, you know, even though money, you know, may be a creature of law, what it measures is value and value comes from the brainstem. It's a really great point. And I actually wanted to give a bit of a sort of historical philosophical lineage for what you you haven't said explicitly, but this idea of the social contract, Mm -hmm. right? And so if we're thinking through like the way liberal philosophy has influenced this sort of thinking and how we can then get to the point where having a sort of social contract of redistribution is equated with socialism is based upon, as you suggested, this idea that first there's a state of nature Mm -hmm. where, as Locke said, right, man is endowed with a natural right to property. He's free to order his actions at his own will, right? This sort of modern subject. But then, of course, there are risks to this. And so at some level, we need to have ways to mitigate transaction costs, you know, risks for conflict and war. And so we need to all come together and agree and consent to becoming a society. We did it, everyone. We created a society. And importantly, like this is all premised about, like you said, a reification and a naturalization of private property as such, Mm -hmm. of this unmediated property relation that then gets filtered through a state but ultimately is only reducible to its privateness right and like marx picks this up too right sadly through his interlocking with smith and through his understanding 
of the barter relation, the way that we start owning things, owning commodities, digging into the earth, planting grain that then we harvest and then is our property. Mm -hmm. It's possession. It's material possession as property in a state of nature, which then we end up trading. And then we have to avoid the double coincidence of wants, which then causes the need for a medium of exchange, which then becomes through transposing into the money commodity money circuit, the money becomes that medium that then alienates us from our private property, our commodities. But then also becomes the technology, this reified private money. Yes, right. Becomes the basis for how we're going to build socialism because the solution is to then redistribute all of the private (laughs) alienated uh, money. Right. If you can't get rid of money, which some people want to do, some people want to cut off the superstructure, the appendage altogether. But if you're going to actually try and like do good things throughout our society as it is now, if you're conceiving it still according to this lineage, right, which one that there are plenty of sophisticated Marxists who reject. And, you know, I'm sure we disagree with them on a lot of things, but at least uh, they're not naive enough to assume that distribution of of these imagined private monetary instruments is equated with socialism and it doesn't even have to be distributed to everyone. It can just be distributed to some. And then no wonder Moyne concludes with the idea that, well, rights aren't enough because we can still exclude people from the ability to hold private property and still have socialism. So sorry, sorry about your rights. It's not going to work. They treat rights the same way that they treat money, like it's private property. I have a right yeah, rather than I am included into a system and society of rights-based mediation. Mm-hmm. Going back really quick to Samuel Moyne, what he gets at, the implication is that as the discourse turns towards rights, it's doing so from distribution, right? As our gaze expands outward, there is a teleology mm. towards internationalism, and that ultimately, rights for Marxists, there is no such thing except a balance of class power. If you fully retreat into rights, eventually you end up in this cosmopolitan space where rights are just like your feelings, you know, <laughs> and facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> and, then, and then you end up with other Jacobin headlines. I won't get into this article except to point out the similarity, which is why international law can't save Palestine. International law has utterly failed to halt or even slow Israel's brutal colonial project. True. The institutions of law can be tools (laughs) in our political movement, but they cannot liberate Palestine on their own. And so, I mean, my first thought when I read headlines like that and when I read, you know, accounts like in the Samuel Moyne article, they're conflating rights, quote unquote, with the EU (laughs) and with with non-legal answerability. Right. And with rights at, at their most opaque. But I actually think that really what this gets at is... For them, there actually is a trajectory uh, where as soon as you stop focusing on distributional conflict in the base 
and you start talking about waving a magic wand to initiate investment somewhere else when you didn't even do the work of taking over Amazon. So how are you going <laughs> to, you know, employ people to do something else? You know, they, they think of that fundamentally as fundamentally just a Trojan horse to get us to stop thinking about power. And power is redistribution. Keystrokes are a scam. Uh, investment as a public right is a scam. I hadn't really quite articulated it in this way in my head before right now. Mm. But what what's happening is they're transposing the logics of capital onto rights themselves. Everything is capital for these people. Everything is capital, right? Which is to say rights and like law is, of course, superstructure, famously, according to Marx. Mm. And therefore is refracting the logic of the sort of external forces of capital, right? We, you hear, think of state capitalism. And therefore, we can start with a sort of contracted mid-century national socialism where rights sort of are effective, right? There's sort of a revolutionary potential, egalitarian potential in rights as it's sort of small, as it, you know, we could think about Marx's work on like early capitalism and how it's sort of is freeing. It's liberating in a sense, mm-hmm. right? It has revolutionary potential. But then as rights fail to provide and fail to fully do socialism, <laughs> they have to go elsewhere, right? They have to go elsewhere. And so there's this sort of logic of accumulation and the pursuit of publics to apply a sort of state capital right onto and of course what is the logic of accumulation in capitalism it there's a falling rate of profit and so of course (laughs) moyne feels that as we expand rights There's a falling rate of substance. There's a falling rate of substance that those rights are tied to, whether like literally in this case, a sort of ethnic substance um, in with the case of, of Israel. And as you distend, as you distance yourself from these sort of substantial sites of power and of, of workers rights become less effective. And so of course, international law is not, going to save palestine because international law is superstructure meanwhile that ignores the way that u.s power and western power actually interfaces internationally monetarily in the active subjugation of palestine right international law is not going to save palestine because international law is actively constructing and maintaining an apartheid state (laughs) yeah but max in saying that you must want some kind of a one world government right well look i i think jacobin should really pivot to its sort of libertarian philosophical roots and just start talking about the the new world order yeah absolutely i mean this because you do get this refrain as soon as you start talking about cooperation between you know nations to create structures of mediation that transcend the nations currency swaps between countries 
uh, you know, is a major example. Also, a shout out to the Nathan Tankus Substack because he he suggested basically using the IMF as such an institution to facilitate uh, more democratically answerable global monetary governance regime that still would be answerable to to each state. If you even get one thing wrong, Nathan's going to hate you. Yeah, we maybe should cut this. (laughs) (laughs) It's not shout out to Nathan Tankus. (laughs) Nathan, I will read your article in full. (laughs) So what, what were we saying? There's this kind of teleology that I feel like is implicit in these articles and in this trope that is you know, in the Jacobin style guide, you know, the media will not save us or human rights will not save us or law will not save us. Insofar as these things might seem valid uh, and might seem like they represent working class power. It's just because behind the scenes there has been real politics, which is redistribution (laughs) at the point of production. And so why... Scandinavia is, you know, so successful uh, and has a welfare state for them is because in their mind, the labor movement is autonomous from the state completely. The labor movement resists being, you know, alienated from its raw material power by all of these lawyers and intermediaries and intellectuals and academics. (laughs) <laughs> Actually, I want to jump ahead. Um, Amber Lee Frost, uh, friend, future uh, future person who's blocked both of us on... Oh, she's not on Twitter, is she? No, she's not on Twitter. Twitter's too much of superstructure. Yeah, t- Twitter would uh, spoil her. But um, yeah, she says, and uh, this is on in a reflection on Corbin Lost, Here's Why Bernie Can Win, uh, which aged really well. Yeah, glorious. Um, Yeah. Second, the American left cannot be held hostage by professionals. However precarious and downwardly mobile we may be, the middle classes and our particularist passions cannot be the primary audience of this campaign, nor can the activist left, quote unquote, who she really is um, just through sheer, not empathy, sheer brainstem she's uh, on the outside of as she writes this, nor can the activist left who often have our own economic incentives for pushing this or that agenda. Professionals are welcome, of course. I highlighted this because I know that you will love love this line. Um, Amber always just says the, the quiet part out loud or like the caricature that we would do out loud. Um, she says, professionals are welcome, of course, but only as part of a universal front with no special rights of their own in the Ooh. void of party democracy where no one can hear them scream. As always, they derive their value from their status as an appendage. Oh boy, love to love to talk about a, a pre- professional class that's an appendage to the base, that's up yeah. there in the in the superstructure who need to be silenced uh, so that we can't hear them scream. Metaphorically speaking, of course. Yeah, but it's it's just hilarious because mass party politics for her is like no one should be able to hear you. <laughs> you know, like you should you should not actually have a voice except as like as like one number or like one particle out of the mass it's, it's kind of very neoliberal actually <laughs> they they you're producing a, a a sort of marketplace of ideas through the mass yeah it's it's either yeah it, it's a it's a marketplace of ideas it's uh i mean you know neoliberals are suspicious of academics with tenure and you know any 
anybody who has a special privilege that lets their voice be elevated above the mass uh you know we have to just let a thousand uh let, let a thousand ideas let a, let a thousand price signals bloom <laughs> it's interesting also because i feel like the jacobin recipe for socialism is that every country should do what they can to move towards scandinavian social democracy from the 1970s <laughs> and from there social democracy inevitably has to confront capital global capital and it will either you know become neoliberalism or become fully transcended into socialism and i feel like the the whole idea of social democracy rooted in one nation this kind of socialism in one country idea is is really problematic it's yeah this is really important too because given the discussion a little bit about the like the problems of social contract theory in general um the premise that social democracy essentially like exists in any meaningful way um i think really needs to be like destabilized because there's this imagination of course and this comes down to um the the very concept of taxpayer money um which i think we should talk more about as well specifically uh with in relation to jacobin and henwood uh in a little bit but the very basis of it being that given our private property over these over these over money and our money we all pay in to this social contract right there's high taxes um high middle class taxes there's a there's an extensive vat um and we all pay in to produce this social construction right this sort of state has produced superstructure um that then mediates redistributes our private property back to us in ways that are efficient, more efficient, let's say, than us trying to do it ourselves, or more egalitarian in the sense of, well, we're going to have a healthcare system that does this and that for everyone, and we're going to have uh, generous unemployment benefits. So if someone, you know, if private capital ditches someone, they'll have a nice, you know, net to land on, get back up on their feet. And then we're going to be so efficient that there that there will even be room for equality a lot of the time. <laughs> Literally. Right. And so it's important to suggest as well, like, first off, that's not how taxes work. That's not how expenditures work. Mm-hmm. That that sort of MMT sort of 1.0, the sort of boilerplate memes. Right. Yeah. Um, that a public decides through whatever mechanisms it does, doesn't have to be necessarily democratic or not, to produce said social structures and forms. Right. And and we also want to say that when we say a public, we're not talking about a floating disembodied public. Absolutely. With the hordes on the outside of it. Nope. It what what's really important about this is if when you when you say the public decides, implied in that is allowing capital agency to decide within public structures right this is this is crucially important and michael kleschke came up came up in the last episode but and and again where i feel like we have this sort of love-hate relationship with kleschke but um he talks about how 
the firm and the corporation becomes the medium by which the public intervenes into the economy. And we can, of course, poo-poo that in, in like and critique it nuancedly, but of, of course, which is to suggest it like the firm and the corporation is necessarily public. It's not private, which is what the imagination of Jacobin is. As a matter of, of law, it's, 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 it's publicly chartered and uses public money. So all, you know, circling back to say that the vision of social democracy as redistribution, hence Moyne's suggestion of distribution, is itself imagining that publics don't produce outcomes that through the interplay of different forms of agency and then ground or negatively produce outcomes on on the opposite end of of the fiscal circuit through taxation. So that's the first part, right? So there's just a a rote misunderstanding about how like money functions politically in systems of state sovereignty and, and legal structures. But importantly as well, implied in this imagination of social democracy that Jacobin really is arguing for is the rejection of pre-existing international forms, whether it's supply chains, whether it's, as you suggested, like as we could suggest and talk about as well more, like swap lines and, and how liquidity gets allocated throughout international the international economy through the man- managing of different uh, exchange rates and the facilitation of of purchases in the dollar internationally. There's so many ways in which the imagination of a national socialist, to use Moyne's term, social democracy, is a construct of a sort of imagination that is extremely liberal and just technically incorrect. And so, of course, if your vision for socialism, let alone if it's just this like austere form that still allows for racism and exclusion, like, you know, in the cases of Germany, in the cases of Sweden, in the cases of certainly partially the UK as well, um, that's extremely problematic on its own terms. But the entire field of debate by which these problematic assertions are being asserted is itself completely nonsensical. And I think this totally comes to fruition in what has to be my favorite article that Jacobin has ever published, which is uh, Doug Henwood's MMT takedown. I got so mad when I was rereading this in preparation for this episode. Well, that's because you have feelings which are in the superstructure. Unfortunately for me, Doug Henwood doesn't care about my feelings, (laughs) though he was really mad in this article. Anger comes from the base. (laughs) The article is called Modern Monetary Theory Isn't Helping. Subheading, MMT is billed by its advocates as a radical new way to understand money and debt, but it'll take more than a few keystrokes to save the economy. And, you know, I mean, it's it's a really long article. I imagine there might even be different parts of it that we will talk about in future episodes. But what kept coming to mind for me and what we were just talking about was his fixation on MMT being keystrokes and that keystrokes spending money as opposed to taking over the means of production and using them to build something else. Spending money on its own can't do anything. Uh, He says, sarcastically, keystrokes will save the earth, except they won't. Literary genius right there. I know, it's just brutal. He might have had help with that, honestly, but... um, (laughs) 
We need a wholesale revamping of our energy and transportation systems, the spatial organization of our cities, and the fundamental processes of industrial and agricultural production. To do that, we will need to step on private capital's freedom of investment, which strikes at the heart of ruling class power. And what just annoyed me so much reading this and falling for the Doug Henwood troll is that he contrasts printing money with investment. Whereas our whole point is that when the government buys something to initiate investment, that is what it is doing. It is creating a new economic form. It is deciding to produce something, deciding which kinds of labor it will need to produce those things and hiring them. It is engaging in resource creation. Resources are not resources become, right? Resources are not some fixed material category because everything in the fucking universe could be a resource or it could be part of nature. Whether or not it is a resource or a part of nature depends on a human being's appraisal of it as that person tries to produce something. So when quote-unquote keystrokes buy something in the private economy or activate production, they are literally doing investment. But he contrasts this with private capital's freedom of investment famously famously capital doesn't use uh computers to invest no they only do it in nature they they only do it from last year's harvest (laughs) i love the idea not only like there's the mmt view which is pretty clear but like just a sort of pretty like baseline understanding of like demand and how demand can cultivate supply. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Like, just read a just a even just like a summary of Keynes. Keynes was a lawyer, Max. He wasn't a real economist. Oh yeah, that's true. He just wanted to print a bunch of new laws every time there was a recession. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm just imagining back in those days of my undergrad neoclassical econ classes, and I just. I just want the the supply curve, just extremely vertical, to be the Henwood curve. <laughs> just a straight up and down supply curve. There's nothing one can do except get into that real economy as a capitalist and just start just pushing the supply curve to the right. Just push, push and push and push. And once you're able to do that... <laughs> You've struck gold. Yeah, that then you have enough room for socialism. You have enough room to do a little inefficient tinkering. Yeah, you know, but you know we gotta get we gotta get the big sweaty muscly boys out there <laughs> just leaning on that supply curve. It's the only way. And obviously, we want to automate a lot of them, so we're not heartless. No, no, and and we should probably not talk about sweaty boys on this podcast too much. No, Doug Hen was a sweaty boy. <laughs> uh, um. As you were saying that, I just saw this, I, and I want to go back to what we were just reading before, but I just, I have to tell you this, this sentence that just stood out to me, which was, taxation may not be full expropriation, but it's the next best thing in this fallen world. Oh my goodness. Eden was before redistribution had to take the form of, you know, moving around poker chips. No, literally, literally, like, the, the this is like actual, like thinking about medieval political theory there is like 
the state of nature and then there's the fallen state and that's the historical state of private property i am i'm not joking that's like and then there's the sunken place (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no i mean like the other thing that annoys me so much about this keystrokes can't save you they're just a performative gimmick you mean like his article (laughs) besides that (laughs) the idea that we are taxing money in order to spend it even if it's not, you know, quote unquote, strictly true, the fact that we're pushing that is a gimmick. And I just want to say to him, how are you going to wave a magic wand and say that just because you said that the tax rate has been raised, you're going to do that? Don't you need working class power? (laughs) Well, look, taxation is backed by violence. So it is. And so, you know, it's the next best thing. Like, look, I personally, as Doug Henwood, want to go and expropriate a capitalist like myself throw on the work boots and and go out into nature and like start i don't know like stealing the harvest as praxis just hold him upside down and shake the amazon gift cards out of his jacket (laughs) but but like we can't do that right because obviously we've fallen into the superstructure you know where we have homes and these sorts of things <laughs> let's not kid ourselves i don't have a home i have a i have an institutional landlord yeah we're we're both floating intermediaries that's that's right but in this fallen world the next best thing we could do is send the NYPD to go and make sure that the capitalist gets hung upside down and the Amazon gift cards are shaken from their pockets. But of course, the NYPD is force, but it's also law, right? It's superstructure. So we need to build oh, our own shit. autonomous force. Uh, what are we going to do? This is a oh, man. I don't know now. Yeah. I'm really sad now as a, oh, maybe I could get, maybe Jacobin will publish me now. I think as we're sort of going to wrap up soon, mm-hmm. I want to like, finish on like we've been having some fun getting our juices flowing you know getting angry reading jacobin from the left yeah reading jacobin (laughs) from the left i do want to bring it back ultimately to what i think the vision for this podcast is and i always feel like you know hopefully this doesn't this this pattern doesn't come off as a a bit a bit earnest well maybe it should but one of our colleagues at the Modern Money Network, um, Raul Carrillo, with Jesse Meyerson, uh, wrote an article for Splinter a while back about the the racist myth of taxpayer money. And I think we can extend that here to sync with the myth of private property mm. in that fundamentally speaking, social contract as cultivating a public that's based in private property and private sovereign will of of the white man. Like, let's not kid about this. Historically speaking, like this is the foundation of social contract theory. This myth at its root is racist, it's sexist, and it is exclusionary. And so if the left is going to be operating trying to operate through this framework which jacobin certainly has samuel moyne does amber ailey frost does obviously dunk head dunk does others do as well um we are naturalizing and and this comes out in in the in the their texts where you know 
talking about being anti-woke or holding up Israel as a national socialist small you know, n small s national small socialist. n small s national socialist bastion <laughs> of distribution or you know rejecting internationalism as a neoliberal i guess woke plot right mm-hmm. and and eliminating the very possibility of using keystrokes to as you suggested invest in production of alternative egalitarian forms of economic and political mediation at the very core of this framework is the myth of the white Lockean individual. And, and that, that is just fundamentally untenable with any inclusionary, inclusive, leftist, anti-racist, anti-sexist, open vision for the future, let alone dealing with impending climate catastrophes to come yeah and when we say the white lockean individual part of this individuation of a person with distinct interests is that my interests are distinct from your interests or if my interests are the same as your interests there's someone else out there who our interests are opposed to and it's really fragile yeah, and it, it fundamentally, it means that you can't have solidarity without a little bit of pain and without... With a, yeah, a little bit of silence. Yeah, without silence. As exactly. uh, Amber Frost suggested. Right. Solidarity is a really difficult negotiation that we can only do once we've become fully class conscious so that we're doing it in good faith, but we're still going to be, you know, sacrificing. Mm-hmm. There's still, you got to rob Peter to pay Paul. You still have to tax to spend. I mean, it's the same logic. 